Amen. Hello, everybody. I wish I was back in high school, eh? Doesn't that sound fantastic? Um, one last quick um, announcement, which I want to make really early in the year. I think there's a slide. Will you throw up that Zim slide for me? Zim and, and Kutusville. Do you, do you, oh, you don't have one. Cross. Okay. I'll tell you about it. On the, uh, it's around about the middle of June. So I think it's the 14th of June. We're planning a specific family trip into Zim. So we're going to have students and families running into Zim together. We do a trip every year around that time. I just want to give a heads up, an early heads up to our families that we're going to plan one section of that trip that you'd be able to take kids from probably about seven, maybe seven or eight and older along on that trip, and we're going to think carefully around how we do that to include the kids on that section of the trip. And then, hey, Christelle, it's awesome to have you. Sitting at the back there, you just snuck in. It's so good to have you here. I'm sorry, interruption on my announcement, but it's just good to see old friends coming back from America and other parts of the world. Um, And so that... There'll be a student, a student team going alongside them, and the student team will go off and do some more, some more um, hardcore stuff, and some of the families will carry on with some more family dynamics, and I'll be leading that section of the team. So I just wanted to give you an early heads up. It should be there. It's not. No, it shouldn't be there. It's not. Um, but just so you can start planning your leave and everything else. We try and do it really cost-effectively. So normally we come in at under 6,000 Rand for the entire two-week trip, transport, food, accommodation, everything is in there. Um, and so it makes it extremely affordable and incredible uh, trip. And we keep building with people that we've been building with. I've been building with them since 2002. So it goes back a long, long way. All right, this morning I want to speak to you. Are you okay? Happy New Year. Welcome to 2020. I want to speak to you. My title is An Anchor for Our Soul. And I just wanted to welcome you to the new decade. Right? It's a new decade, and I, I, over the holidays, I got to thinking about our past decade, my family, and what God's done in the 2010s. And so I, I thought back to 31st of December, 2009, and tried to imagine what I was doing. And so I went back and I, I started looking at some old family photographs, and here's one, it should be one of my family, which is um, a lot smaller. If you, can you see that? Look at those little kids. We were just an ordinary 2.0 family, two kids, run-of-the-mill, this is before we had five, right? Look how easy that looks. <laughs> just relaxed, no wrinkles, no gray hair. That's 2010, the beginning of 2010. I thought of um, going with a group of friends of mine to the World Cup in big white overalls with a South African badge painted on our, on our um, kind of pocket shouting and screaming at the World Cup games in Cape Town, and that was 2010. I thought of being immersed in the the kind of middle phases of my business life, and we were starting businesses and having so much fun, and I did that for 10 years plus, and just having so much fun in that realm, and I just thought, God, how much you've changed in our lives in 2010 to 2020. And then I started thinking a little bit as I was musing this week about how much the world has changed. On the 31st of December in 2009, there was no Uber. There was no Airbnb. There was no, this shocked me, there was no Apple iPad yet. Hey? There wasn't even an Apple Watch for another five years. Thank you, Discovery. There was no Alexa or Amazon. There was no Instagram. There was no Pinterest. Some of you are still like, eh? (laughs) That's okay. If you miss these things, they're not a big deal. On the 31st of December 2009, you might still have hope in your heart to meet in the flesh Nelson Mandela. 
You might have hoped to go and watch a movie starring Robin Williams. You might have hoped to see in concert Prince, Amy Winehouse, Whitney Houston. You might have been waiting for a new book by Steve Jobs. On the 31st of December 2009, you would never have seen this man. Will you throw up a picture of that, that man? Does anyone know who that is? You would never have seen him in 2009, but I'm hoping some of you have seen him by now. That's Mohammed Bawazizi. This is the man, the Tunisian, he was a Tunisian, he was a street vendor. The cops came and, and, and asked him for a bribe when he was selling vegetables and fruit on the streets, and he refused to pay the bribe, and so they confiscated his cart, and he, in, in an act of defiance, he set himself on fire and died. But that was the beginning of the Arab Spring. That was the catalyst moment where thousands of people began to rise up and, and to revolt in that country of Tunisia, and then that began to spread into other countries. And if you go and look at the statistics, the estimates are that more people have been refugeed and forced from their homes than any other recorded act in the history of the world through the Arab Spring. But Mohammed Bouazizi was the man where that all began on the 17th of December 2010. Closer to home, when we think of 31st of December 2009, we had never heard the phrase state capture. Unless you were very into Sahara computers, you'd never heard of the Gupta brothers. You'd never heard of Fees Must Fall. The EFF was still three and a half years away from being formed. Isn't it crazy? We were awakened in this last decade to the fact that the femicide rate in South Africa is five times higher than the global average. Five times more women are killed in domestic violence in our country than in any global statistic. We began the decade with the hosting of the 2010 World Cup and we ended it by winning the Rugby World Cup and those beautiful images of Sia Kulisi holding up that trophy, something happens in South African hearts. And so I wonder what 2010 to 2020 brought for you. I wonder what God has done in your life. I wonder what happened in, in your family. Maybe the birth of some new ones, some new grandchildren, some new children. All these wonderful joys. Maybe the death of some, someone that we loved very much. Maybe the parting of a very close friendship. Maybe the beginning of beautiful new friendships. Some have made so much money. My brother, <laughs> my brother told me this story about a, one of his clients. And his son was a gamer and still like a teenager. And he bought loads and loads of Bitcoin. Right? If any of you followed the Bitcoin trend, he bought loads. He's in Somerset West. Loads of Bitcoin when it was just being used as a gaming currency. So it was like, I don't know, like I think it was six or seven US cents a Bitcoin. And he forgot about it and he left it there. And then Bitcoin hit 400,000 Rand for one. And he made more money selling off those gaming Bitcoins than his father had made in his entire career. <laughs> Teenage kid, high school kid. Some of us have lost huge amounts of money in the last decade, walking with people who've had to close doors of businesses, which have had 30, 40 years of legacy behind them. Some, some have suffered the agony and the heartache of relational breakdown, divorce, family divides. Others, the Hullies, 
celebrating you guys this morning, brand new marrieds, Jeff and M. Think of Pete and Yana. Think of so many people. All the Cunninghams coming in in their marauding bands and taking three people out of our congregation back to Zimbabwe. Three kids from Zimbabwe came here and took three back with them from one family. That's good parenting right there. My point is this. In all of our lives, there's these shifting sands. I don't want to sound like, what is it, days of our lives? Through sand through the hourglass, not, not that at all, but, but life is so unpredictable. It's so uncertain. And I want to ask you this morning how do you anchor? How do you anchor? If you look back at the surprises of the last 10 years in your life, how, what, what do you build? What do you use to build solid foundations? And how do you have this assurance inside of your heart that what you're using won't give way? That it's actually a solid foundation. What do you do to build? To anchor yourself, do you, do you immigrate? Do you build a bigger bank account, more savings, more investments, a better RA, a more diverse property portfolio, and then you happen to meet your neighbor who's Zimbabwean and that all goes out the window because they tell you their story? Right? we just got to look across the border to realize that that's not going to sustain us. What do you use as your anchor? Let me, let me flip this a little bit and ask it another way. What thing in your life, if I was to take it away, if I was to come and say that part of your life, I'm going to take it away, what, what would I need to take away to make you feel completely lost, tossed in a wild sea on a tiny dinghy with just one oar? What would that thing be? I, I love this picture uh, it's not a great picture, but in, in a lot of countries, there's something called sinkholes. And everything looks perfect on the surface. The road outside your house just looks like the road outside your house. But unknown to you is that water is busy eroding and eroding underneath. And all of a sudden, in a dramatic moment, everything just collapses. And there's a sinkhole. And you'll see these photos of cars and parts of houses and buses and all sorts of things just collapsed in this sinkhole. And sometimes it feels like that happens in our lives. Everything looks okay. Facebook looks great. But under the surface, these things are busy eroding us until one day there's this massive collapse. What would I have to take from you? Your job? Your career? What if you woke up one morning and we'd zeroed your bank account? What if we came and knocked on your house and said, this is now the bank's. All your cars, all your furniture, your house, it's ours. What if I came in and stuck my, my finger in, in, in some way into your family? And one of your kids passed on. Would that, what, what would that do? Would that, would that be the sinkhole moment for you? Would it be if I went and destroyed your reputation? Let me ask you again. How do you anchor? Because we're all trying to anchor somehow. Every day we're trying to anchor on something. How do you build solid foundations? I want to read the story out of the Word of God this morning. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 7. And it's the story of two men who, who Jesus tells a story about. And this is, they, this is the exact dilemma that they are facing. How do we anchor? What do we anchor our lives on? And they had to choose how they were going to build their lives. And we're going to read what Jesus has to say about them in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 24. I'll speak a little bit more in a moment about the context of what Jesus is speaking into, but Jesus is finishing off the Sermon on the Mount. 
That's what's happening right here at the end of Matthew 7. Verse 24, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. I need to reach into your minds for a moment and I need to pull you out of the Sunday school space where we used to sing songs about this. This is a powerful, profound example that Jesus is putting before us. We can imagine these two men. He's putting these two men in front of us and he's saying, one of them built like this and one of them built like that and one of them, when everything comes against him, is going to be okay and the other one's really, really not going to be okay. It's not just a nice song. So I want to make a few observations. Right away, we can see that Jesus is saying, There is a way to build your life that when the trials and the storms and the wind comes, you will not fall down. I want to sound that loudly over us this morning. That is a a hope-filled, encouraging note. There is a way to build your life. Because there's moments in our lives where we feel as if everything is caving in. This this, This is impossible. This can't be done. Scripture says there is a way. Some of us really need to hear that this morning. Not just with our, not with our ears, but you need to stop. You need to listen. You need to drink it in. Like, like water for a thirsty soul. There's a way. A God-given way that we can build our lives. That when anxieties and death and depression and joblessness and crime rush into our lives, we can still stand. We're going to read in a moment from a little bit earlier in Matthew chapter 7, and you'll see that Jesus speaks about that day. He says, that day, that day is the day of judgment. This this text is speaking about the day where every believer and the person who believes in Christ and the person who doesn't believe in Christ, equally we're going to stand before God and He's going to judge us. So this is talking about both our lives now, here, and is our house going to stand on that day? This is great hope that there is a way. There is a way. This is the hope that the Jews were longing for, waiting for. How do we get righteousness? How do we? We're so full of our own sin. We can see it when we're honest with ourselves. We know that we can't make it on our own. How do we escape? How do we get rescued? Jesus comes and says, there's a rock. There's a way. And I want to encourage us this morning because some of us are desperately doing the duck. Do you know what doing the duck is? Smiling above the water and the feet are going like this. That's doing the duck. We do it so brilliantly on Facebook. Our lives look fantastic. You just had the best Christmas holiday in the world. Everyone looks at you and envies. 
Meanwhile, underwater, the feet are going like this. You're in debt because you flew somewhere you shouldn't have flown. You skied where you shouldn't have skied. You're going like this because your family is falling apart and there's, there's anxieties and you're trying to patch it over with something or other. Doing the duck. Man, for those of us who have those moments, and it's every single one of us in our lives, what a comfort, what a relief to come to a God who says, I'll give you a rock to build your house on. As the text makes so clear, there's also a way to build that leaves us with a flood rushing in, our house falling down, and us floating down the river, which is not a happy scenario. Guys, when I, I was... Well, let me say this secondly before I say that. Storms, this is the language of, of the text, storms, floods, torrential rain, high-speed winds beating against the side of your house. It's so graphic, isn't it? This, I love this text. It's so graphic. It's, like it's, it's beating against the side of your house. You inside, terrified. You're sitting there, and this stuff's smashing your house. This is my second encouragement to you. It will come. <laughs> I hope that doesn't sound too different. It will come. If you're not sure, go and find some of the gray hairs in our congregation and ask them. It will come. Man, and this is, what, this is what I wanted to say. When I look back at the last 10 years that we've been part of, of this congregation and new January where we came here 2014, man, I'm so proud of you. I'm so proud of the believers that God has gathered together under new gen and now, and now one hope. I'm so proud of the stories of those who have faced huge trials, the stories that we've walked roads with. All of us in the room have walked roads with people that we love and, and, and your faith in Christ has proved that your house is built on a rock. If I, I just started thinking through different scenarios that many of us have faced and, and I think of childlessness. I think of miscarriage and walking with people who've, who've gone through some of their multiple miscarriages. I think of bankruptcy that's happened in the last 10 years in our congregation. I think of deep and dark days of depression and anxiety, of divorce, of relational brokenness, even in my own life. I think of death, and not just death, even murder. I think of those who've battled with unemployment. I think of those reaching retirement and the struggles that, that come with that. I think of just sin and the ravaging effects of temptation and sin on our lives and on the lives of those that we love. And on and on the list could go, and that doesn't even cover every personal anguish that we never shared out loud. But man, this congregation, by the grace of Jesus Christ, so many have stood firm. So many. That's why that the Sunday that we do at the end of the year, our Thanksgiving Sunday, last year, the year before, we had to do two, and this year we could easily have done another one because there's just so many people standing up from the congregation and just sharing and saying, this is what went wrong. This is what happened. My husband got meningitis after leading worship. Natalie got up and shared, in three months he has to be at home and he can't work. But God... 
And people stand up, and, and Gordon and Elena, two years ago, after the murder of her mom, stood up and shared the most profound, powerful testimony of the grace of God. Not saying, oh, it was easy. Saying, no, we wanted to turn away from God. It was hard. We wanted to, we wanted to find answers. We wanted to punish perpetrators. And instead, by the grace of God, they've started a foundation to help underprivileged people like the one who killed her mom. What, what does that? The grace of God. And I'm proud of this congregation. I'm proud of the work that Jesus is doing in our hearts. And I want to encourage you as you walk out your faith this side of heaven that on this day, on that day, on the great day, the judgment day, as you trust in Christ and learn to keep in step with the Holy Spirit that your house will stand. Guys, you are building on rock. If you know Christ Jesus, you are building on rock. And so the first encouragement is that there is a way to stand. He has made a way for us to stand. The second sort of encouragement is that storms are guaranteed. And the third thing I want to just touch on briefly is how, how do we know how we are building? How do you know? I mean, none of us wake up in the morning and, and get our little sand and sand bucket and spade and like, you know, a little lobster um, thing, you know, those things you use on the beach to make like your little lobster, what you call them, casts or whatever. None of us get that and go like, I'm going to go about my day building sand. That's what I think is really going to sustain my house. So how do you know? How do you know? Well, Jesus, Jesus puts these two men in the story. It could be a woman. It makes no difference. And, and the real question of the story is, which one are you? Right? Which one, which one are you? What are you building your life on? And it's so easy to imagine these two men. They both built houses. The houses both look great. They both faced the same storm. You ever thought of that? You both faced the same storm? Just because we come to Christ, we're not now exempt from trial, from temptation, from disaster, from tragedy. We're not exempt from those things. We face the same storm. But the outcome of what these men encountered could not have been different, any more different. So let me tell you the context of what's going on here in Matthew 7, because it really struck me. This is, the, this is I would call this the greatest sermon ever preached. It begins in Matthew chapter 5, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and it, it includes stuff like this, city on a hill. You are the city on a hill. You are a light. It includes the Lord's Prayer. It includes the Beatitudes, probably one of the most profound sections of Scripture that you could read. It includes take the plank out of your own eye before trying to take the speck out of your brother's eye. It includes sections on judging and not judging one another. This is, this is a good sermon. I would say the best sermon. And, and when I thought of that as a preacher, I thought of how every preacher wishes he or she could preach like this. Like this Matthew 5, 6, and 7. How Jesus preached in that moment. And I, I thought about the crowd, because I'm a preacher, and I think I'm preaching to millions. And I, this is one of my own personal sins. <laughs> and, I, and I imagined every person with this, if you, if you could just preach this sermon, every person surely would be cut to the heart. Every person would come to repentance. And I thought about if this was a church building, I imagine people streaming to the front, repenting, weeping, falling on their face, moved by the Holy Spirit. But Jesus, 
Jesus is a bit of a killjoy in this, in this sermon because instead of just like seeing what, what I see here, he, he says, hey, some of you are listening to me and you moved to repentance and you're going to do what you are hearing and that's like building on a rock. But he says, some of you are going to walk away. You might even be moved or you might even feel something in the moment, but your life is going to show that you heard me but you did nothing about it. The best sermon in the world. And yet, people still choose away from him. It gave me great comfort. This is another little side thought. It gave me great comfort the other day when someone pointed out to me that not even Jesus brought through all 12 of his disciples. Have you ever thought about that? gives me great comfort. This is, what, this is what Jesus is saying at the end of this sermon. That everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house. On the sand. Go, go forward, back, I mean, go back in your Bible, just a few verses to verse 21 of the same chapter. Just go there with me. We're asking this question, how do you know what you're building with? How do you know? Jesus says that this profoundly frightening, I guess, thing in verse 21, 22, 23, and remember, this is all part of Sermon on the Mount. He's closing it out. He says this. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Isn't that a, a scary verse? See, just because we look the part and attend church and learn how to behave in a more moral way, even though we may put on a show and people see us with supposed power from God. It's still Jesus can say, depart from me. This is why, this is why guys, it's so dangerous to, to take what we see as the fruit of someone's ministry and take that as validation as what they say is true. So we'll see a TV ministry and we see miracles and then we just swallow it hook, line and sinker. Jesus says, those things are going to happen from people that I'm going to say, hey, I don't, I don't know you. But we're asking this question, how do you know? How do you know which man in the story you are? Which woman in the story you are? Which material are you using to build on? How do you know whether or not when the, when the storms of life come rushing against you, when you hear the knock of, of the wind against your windows and, and the, the storm bashing against the walls, how do you know whether you're going to stand? Jesus says it so simply. He says it like this. He says, this is how you know. 
The house that's still standing is when you hear the word of God and you do it. So simple. The house that's not standing is when you hear the word of God and you don't do it. So if you don't intend to do what you hear from the word of God, it's dangerous to come to church. You're in great danger to go to conference after conference and hear more and more of the Word of God if you don't intend to do it. You're in great danger to go on YouTube and watch your favorite preacher. Why? Because if we hear and we hear and we hear and we never do and it never affects our lives and move us to actually change how we live our lives and our heart attitude toward God, we just become more and more immune to the things of God. So let me ask you this. In application today... Do you? Do you do what you hear in the Word of God? Let me ask it in, in a few different ways to try and help us. Is Jesus, this is one of my favorite phrases, is Jesus Lord? When you stop and think about lordship, Paul says, I'm a prisoner. Paul says, I'm a slave. This is the language he uses to describe some of how he sees himself as to God. When God says, go, I say, yes. When God says, jump, I say, how high? Because I trust you, Lord. Do you, do you, another way of saying, is Jesus Lord, is to ask this. Do you rely on him for salvation and look to him for direction? Because this, this is a very simple message. Extremely simple message. But it's got deep deep practical implications of how we live our lives. Because I, I really fear that so many of us in our worlds are just 95% of our lives are geared the way we want to gear them onto. And then there's about a 5% kind of bolt on, which is God. And, you know, we go to church and sometimes we go to life group if it's a good year. Man, God wants all of us. He says, I am Lord. When I say I want you to do this, you say, yes, God. And I think we just don't even pause. We don't even stop in the busyness of our lives to really consider what is it you want, Lord? Let me ask it another way. Are his words so precious to us that we spend much time pondering how we can obey him? I'm provoking us. Do we, do we stop in this next decade, even in this next year? Are we going to stop and say, Father, what is it that you want for me to do? This morning, Johannes led us so beautifully in our prayer meeting, and we prayed through Ephesians, I think it was Ephesians 2.10, that he's pre, pre-planned, preordained, works for us to do. He's thought about them beforehand, that there's things on this planet that Paul and Ollie and Lachey and every single person here, that God says, I, I have an intention for your life. And if we're so busy that we don't even stop and say, God, what is that intention? What is it you want me to do for the next 10 years? I can ask it, you can ask this question so many different ways, and I'm hoping that by just taking it at different angles, I'll hit something in our, something in our hearts. Do we give up things that we sense grieve Him? When we're watching a series and we're just in our hearts, our conscience, something is saying, hey, 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 hey. Do we just shut that guy out and say, hey, this is a really good series. I'm just going to fast forward this bit and carry on. Or are we actually listening and saying, God, this, this feels like this grieves you. I don't want, I'm, not, I'm not going to pay a stupid price to watch a series. I'll get rid of that thing. Man. I'll get rid of my TV if you tell me to, God. I'll stop supporting Liverpool if you tell me to, God. Please don't, but I will. Are we saying, God, what, what can I do that pleases you? 
And guys, I'm not talking about salvation here. I'm not saying, how can I please you so that you can save me? No, I'm talking about that we're saved. We've come into a knowledge of Jesus Christ. We know that through faith, by grace alone, we are saved. But then he says, yes, but it doesn't just stay there. I've got things for you to do. And out of our love response, we say, man, you're my Lord. You're my King. You're my Savior. What can I do? We walk in step with the Spirit. We keep our conscience sharp in prayer. Man, I, something on our hearts when we were at the end of last year as elders, we began to meet and to think and to pray. We went away for a weekend away together. And one of the things that we need to see explode across our congregation this year is prayer. We need to learn again how to come before God and throw ourselves in dependence on Him. That's the beauty of prayer. We're so independent. I can do it. I've got it, God. Don't worry about this thing, this thing, this thing. This morning, I'm just going to pray about this thing because this is the one that's most critically in need. But all these other ones, God, I've got them. That's how we treat prayer, right? I mean, I'm saying this as someone who, this is one of my greatest struggles. This is my prayer life. I'm a person who just, I want to do, I want to produce, I want to have the end of the day my tick list, you know? And prayer just feels so opposite that. Can I just be honest? Is that just my experience? Prayer does not feel like I'm doing anything. And I've got to bring it before God and say, you're my Lord. You've told me to pray. It feels so counter my nature. I want to go and do stuff every time I do that. And I come and submit myself to prayerfulness. Man, God does so much more through my day. He does so much more in my heart. I feel alive. I feel satisfied with the work that I do do. Are you with me? You're very quiet out there. You okay? I'm trying to paint a picture of a man or woman who is building in this way. We said, Christ, you're the rock. I want to now I want to build my house upon this rock and, and it's prayerfulness and it's simple things. What is it that grieves you? What is it that pleases you? How do I live a devoted life? What does that look like in the midst of 21st century crazy career? What does that look like, God? And, and the, the opposite side is this person, this man, this woman, and we've all been there and we all are there because we do this periodically is that we're building and, and building and building and it feels like I mean, the one text in the Old Testament says it feels like you're, you're, you put money in your pocket, but your pocket's got a hole in it, and so you never have enough money for the day. That kind of feeling where you're, just, you're building and you're building, but it never feels enough. It never feels satisfying. And we work on our careers, and we work on the way that people see us. We curate our reputation so carefully. We have our retirement dreams, and we're just kind of ignoring that nagging voice in our minds, hoping against hope that when we reach the end, everything that we've built will be enough. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Now, I want to, I know I reiterate this, but I'm going to say it again, because I know that, in, especially in Stelis, we speak into a culture where so many have been taught legalism, so many have been taught how to just behave, and we kind of have a relationship with Jesus just because our mom and dad we're part of a church or whatever it may be. I don't want you to hear me say, follow laws. That's not what I'm saying. I don't want you to hear me say, be moral. I want you to be moral. 
But I'm not saying be moral to earn your salvation. I'm not saying make loads of New Year's resolutions and keep them whether you have to die to do it. And those are also not terrible things to make. I'm not saying be a better you, Oprah Winfrey. I'm not saying behavior management, alter your behavior, make sure people don't see you when you're angry, so find a little room that's quiet where you can hit the punch bag. I'm not saying hashtag best decade ever. I'm not, I'm not trying to rah-rah you into the next decade. Jesus starts his sermon with these words. In, in chapter 5, verse 3, he says, Blessed are the, the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The NLT says it like this, God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him. And I want, to, I want to finish off this morning asking you this. Have you had this revelation? Have you realized your need of Him? Not just in salvation. That's the primary place. That's where we start. Father, my need for you is so great. And that never goes away, right? The longer that you follow Him, the more, the more you realize you needed Him. When you first get saved, you think, oh, Jesus just forgave me for like that thing I did last week. And when you've, been, when you've been saved for a long time and you look back, you, just, you feel more and more like the sinner that you are. Is that just me as well? <laughs> Anybody else in the room? Right, you realize more and more what, what mercy means, what grace means, what redemption means, what, what a privilege it is to have a rock that we can build on. We realize our need for Him more and more. We realize over and over, Jesus, I need you because my way isn't working. When you're 20 or 18, you're convinced your way is going to work. You're going to change the world. When you're 38 and have five children and life settles into a mundane pattern at times, you look and you say, well, I'm not changing the world. Have I given up on my dreams? No, just my way doesn't work. God's got another way that I need to submit to and learn. Let me ask you again, how will we anchor both in this life as the inevitable storms come, but ultimately on that day? What are we going to say? God, I... Dot, dot, dot. What's your anchor? What are you going to point to? I love, love, love this text in Hebrews chapter 6. Turn there with me. We won't be long and we'll be done. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 6. One of my personal favorite portions of Scripture. <clears throat> Verse 17. It says this. God, I mean, you could, you could just spend days just thinking about these first four words. God also bound Himself. I think of what is man that you are mindful of me? What is the son of man that you care for me? What, what is the God of the universe doing that he binds himself with a promise to man? Anyway, that's another preach, but it just it strikes me when I, when I read that. God also bound himself with an oath so that those who receive the promise could be perfectly sure that he would never change his mind. So God has given both His promise and His oath. These two things are unchangeable because it is impossible for God to lie. Therefore, we who have fled to Him for refuge can have great confidence as we hold to the hope that lies before us. 
This hope is a strong and trustworthy anchor for our souls. What are you going to anchor on? Nothing else is worth it. Nothing else will hold you. This hope, this hope in the Jesus who has given himself for us is a strong and trustworthy anchor for our souls. It leads us through the curtain into God's inner sanctuary. If you're not familiar with Old Testament language, there was a temple, and in this temple was an inner sanctuary or a holy place, and it was where God Himself lived. And this is saying that, that through Jesus we can go in there. Through the curtain, we are in that holy place with God. We no longer have to go through a priest. You don't have to come to me to sprinkle water on and do communion in a certain way. Jesus, it carries on, has already gone in there for us. He has become our eternal high priest in the order of Melchizedek, who's an Old Testament mysterious figure. That's another sermon on it as well. Let me speak to you this morning if you don't know this Jesus. Man, I hope that there are some of us sitting here who are stirred in our hearts but who don't yet know this Jesus Christ. I hope, those of you who do know Jesus Christ, that we grow in boldness this year to bring people who don't know Him. I want to say to you, if you don't know Christ and you don't follow Him and you don't believe He's God's plan to rescue you, I want to ask you, would you carefully consider the words that I'm speaking this morning. You are building on sand, but God provides a way out through Jesus. He has provided. You, you might say, Paul, I'm a, I'm a good person. In fact, I'm even better behaved than some Christians I know. I care more about the poor. I, I swear less than my Christian friend. I have my life more ordered, etc., etc. Et I'm more generous what will anchor you? What will anchor you in the coming storms of life? What will anchor you on that day when our Father turns to judge every one of us? It's going to happen. I've, I've been praying specifically for you this week. If you don't know Christ, and I don't know if there's anyone here, even if there's not, I'm going to keep on preaching this just so that you know that when you bring your friend who doesn't know Jesus, we're going to preach it again. But I've been praying specifically that Jesus would bring people into our midst who don't know Him that would come to know Him. Jesus says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And we get so blasé with that. I was thinking about this Iranian crisis that's going on. You following it? You know, Trump, doing Trump, bombing people, killing people, that kind of thing. But then this absolute tragedy of this this. Aircraft just taking off, 176 people on board. Four minutes after takeoff, bang, hit by a missile. Some, some jittery Iranian, I don't blame him, sitting there expecting two hours after they've attacked the Americans that they're going to send in a warplane. He thinks this is a ballistic missile coming in or a warplane or something. He's got a few seconds to decide. He hits the go button, two missiles go out, and 176 people are killed. But for four days... The Iranian government says, no, it didn't happen. didn't happen. Until Canada and the UK and Ukraine and USA and all the other guys begin to produce actual evidence 
satellite imagery showing missile launches until the Iranian people themselves begin to send out on Twitter videos of the moment. You can see it, the missile streaking across the sky and an airplane flying and it's there. My point is not about Iran or USA or politics. My point is that Jesus says, I am the truth. What a rare commodity in our world where you read the news and you have no idea, no idea whether that actually happened or if it's just the fabrication of some journalist's mind or a political leader trying to cover their tracks. But Jesus says, I am the way. This is how you come. This is, I'm the truth. I'm the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. And if you believe that, then you can come. And I'm not judging anybody. Every single one of us have had to come to that realization in our own lives. The, re- the, re- the realization of Romans where it says, all have sinned. All. Molly, that means you. Paul, that means you. That's me, by the way, if you don't know me. Every single one, all have sinned. And we have to come to this realization where we say, Father, I've sinned. And not like the Catholic sense of that phrase. I want to ask you this morning, will you come to Him and surrender your life? Can I ask you, actually, I'm just going to have faith in the moment. Would you close your eyes? Is there anybody here this morning who does not know this King, who would like to say, man, I want to build my house on the rock. I want to follow this God. I just don't want to miss an opportunity. If there is somebody here like that this morning, I want to ask you, if you would just indicate by raising your hand, and I'm not doing that to embarrass you. That's why I ask people to close their eyes. I'm not doing that to, to get some like early beginning of the year tick on a chart. I'm doing that because we want to walk a road with you. So I'm saying put your hand up so we know who you are, so we can pray with you and encourage you and work, walk a journey with you. Is there anybody like that this morning? Father, in this moment where not one person lifts their hand, I pray that every one of them know you. And we ask, Lord, that you would send us out as salt and light, a city on a hill, into our world, Father, that many would come to know you through those sitting here today in the power of Jesus' name. Lord, that you'd embolden us. Give us courage. Give us fresh filling of the Holy Spirit. We need to be filled and filled and filled again, God. I'm not talking about the second baptism of the Spirit. I'm speaking about the 200th baptism of the Spirit that we all need powerfully alive within us. God, where our hearts have grown cold and apathetic towards those who don't know you. Lord, my heart, my heart, Lord, struggles over and over to care Would you, by the Holy Spirit, come and stir again a love for so much more than just your church, for so much more than just your people, Lord. Stir our hearts for those who don't don't yet know you. Can I encourage you, man? Bring people. You can open your eyes, or you can keep them closed if you're having a, a good moment. But can I encourage you to bring people who don't know Christ We have Alpha coming up this year. We have many moments. We have Sunday after Sunday where we're trying to throw out the gospel and say, man, if you don't know Jesus, have the courage in the personal moments. The Holy Spirit will give you the words. This is what comforts me so greatly. God wants them to come to know Him more than you ever could. 
It's like when I think of trying to parent my kids and then I'm afraid to, to let God parent and, and, and be God over my kids' lives. And then I realize, hey, God's a better father than I could ever be. Like, not like by a little bit. It's not like, you know, Paul there and God there. It's like Paul nowhere on the radar and God like the universe is good at parenting my, my children. And so it gives me great courage when I think of personal evangelism, when I want to talk to some of my friends that I'm building a relationship with. It gives me great courage to think, hey, God is after this person. The, the, the one writer calls it the, the hound of heaven. The hound of heaven. I love that. Chasing after our friends, our family, in the most beautiful, winsome way. He never puts his foot in it. He never stuffs up the punchline. He never misquotes the verse. God wants them to come to him, and he will give us courage and words in that moment. Anyway, I'm going way off script, but I just want to encourage us. Man, there are people who don't know Jesus. And then what does it mean for you if you're a Christ follower? What does the de next decade look like? This is my simple challenge to you this morning. Where is your trust placed? Where is your trust placed? If you could answer that question. Look at your life. Look at the way you, you, you run your finance. Look at the way you run your family life. Look at the way you run your career. Look at how you live, where you live, what country. What do you trust? What are you really anchoring onto? God will sustain us. And so we're going to break bread this morning.